Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets presented by Darwin Asset Management and Darwin Wealth Management, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts in 20 minutes or less. I'm Remy, and with me, I have Mike Contino. The S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones, the Russell 2000, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about market indices. We hear these names tossed around all the time, and we've been conditioned to compare our own portfolio performance against these common indices. But why? Does it actually make sense? That's what we're going to talk about today. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to shout out on the show, email comments at onmarkets.com, or you guys can hit me up directly at remy, R-E-M-Y, at onmarkets.com. And if you like our show, don't forget to hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So Tino, this is your world. So why don't you set the stage for us? What is a market index and what are they used for? You know, a market index is, it's a benchmark. It's a, it's a basis of comparison. You know, everything in the world is relative. So if you say you're up 5% or if you're up 10%, doesn't really mean much unless you can compare it to somebody else or some type of a, of a standardized benchmark. So these um, index providers like S&P Global, they have created indexes that, and then they go out and they market them. And they get people to follow the indexes to, um, to have somewhat of a, called a standardized uh, benchmark or comparison. So, you know, for, for the S&P 500, which tends to be the most, most popular one out there, it's um, it's actually it doesn't have 500 stocks. I think it has 505 stocks because some companies like Google have uh, dual share classes. But basically, uh, they um, they create indexes to compare investing styles together. So the S and P 500, like I said, is is a large cap uh, index. It's what we call core, a mix of growth and value. Uh, the Russell 2000 tends to be smaller cap stocks or smaller companies. Uh, there's the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index for the bond bond market. There's there's a number of these indices out there. There's actually uh, at this point, um, I, I think thousands of indices, and you can slice and dice investments in many different ways. So let's talk about uh, the most common, which is probably I would think the S and P 500. No, uh, without no question. question. So let's talk a little bit about the S and P 500. What exactly makes up the S and P 500? So it's interesting you say that. There's this theory out there called the sausage principle, right? And uh, I'm not sure if, if you guys are familiar with this, but if, if you love something, never know, never learn how it's made, right? So uh, those that are have any t- affinity towards the S&P 500, uh, you might want to hit the mute button at this point. Uh, the, the way they construct these indices are, I mean, the short version, guys, is that it's a bunch of people in a room picking stocks. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So there's, there are kind of two steps to an index. The first is what's called uh, qualification. Now, most indices set up quantitative metrics for qualification. I'm talking about numbers, it, you know, market cap, company size, things of that nature, profitability metrics that you have to meet to become, to quote unquote, qualify for the index. And then once you get to the past the qualification phase, inclusion tends to be more of a qualitative or subjective point of view. And again, what that means is if they like you or if they want to pick you for whatever reason, you can get included. So some indices are purely quantitative, like the Russell, I believe, is almost all quantitative, if not all. But the S&P 500, again, that's the one everybody wants to talk about because roughly $2 trillion in assets right now follows the S&P 500. That one is, frankly, again, it's subjective. It's a bunch of people in a room picking stocks. 
So this comes up all the time, you know, when I'm talking to clients, right? Uh, you know, I get the, you know, why don't I just buy an S&P? Most managers don't beat the S&P, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I just, I think the thing that I struggle with is the fact that it changes to me the conversation from where it really should be for most people, right? We talk about it all the time about, you know, goals-based. If I need $100,000 a year to live on and I am invested in a way that it's commensurate with my my particular risk tolerance, I'm not freaking out about taking too much risk and you know, I'm comfortable and I'm, and I'm meeting my goal. I should be a happy guy. Uh, but for some reason, most people are not because it's the, these, these indices have been drilled into their heads and it's the S and P, the S and P, the S and P. And it, it's really hard to move the conversation because it sounds, it, it sounds like you're, you're, you're making an excuse, right? If you, if you're not meeting the S and P, like a lot of people, you know, they, they completely ignore the risk factor when it comes to S and P, right? And, and most people's risk tolerance especially if they're at a stage in life where they are either living on their investments or supplementing their, their income with their investments and so forth. The risk tolerance of the actual S&P is, is really inappropriate for most of those people, right? So you, you, you put them into something that has a, a lower risk tolerance. It, it sort of follows that you're not going to, you know, you're not going to follow the S&P and nobody really seems to notice. I mean, it's human nature, right? If the S&P does, does 10% and you did 12 it's like, you know, hey, thanks. And 10 seconds later, you forgot about it. But if the S&P does 10 and, and you did eight, you know, that you get really focused on the negative piece of that. And when you try to shift the conversation away from that to, look, this is your goal. We are meeting your goal. It almost sounds like an excuse. And it's, it's really hard to have that conversation. And, and I don't, you know, I struggle with that all the time. Well, you think about it, Mike. I mean, and I don't need to tell you this. You're the you're the one in meetings all day. But uh, we we in this business, we have two benchmarks. If if the market's going up, it's the S and P 500. If it's going down, our benchmark is zero. Uh, yeah. and, and that's just the way this business many times works. I would argue that the S and P 500, while it has 505 stocks in it, and it's you know it does have a lot of different sectors in there. Obviously, I've always found the index to be very inappropriate for most investors. To your point, not just because it's it's highly aggressive, but it's also not diversified. I mean, you're talking about large cap stocks in the U.S. That is it, okay? And yeah. you think about the investment universe. You know, you think about the different types of asset classes, the different regions, all of that mixed together. And I don't care if you're 22 years old. I don't think the S&P 500, frankly, is a good benchmark for anybody's financial future. So why do you think the S&P is sort of become the, the standard? I mean, is it, is it just marketing? Well, so Mike, you said it yourself earlier. What, what's the goal of an investor? Well, I'll, let's ask ourselves, what's the goal of an index? S&P Global, they make about a billion dollars a year in licensing fees. Okay. So basically what happens if I'm a large cap money manager that I'm benchmarked against the S&P 500, or let's say I'm an index fund, even better. I typically pay pretty large licensing fees to S&P 5, I'm sorry, S&P Global to be able to track the index. This is a very, very serious business. We're talking a billion dollar a year business. So you got to ask yourself, what are the incentives behind it? And, and I'm not saying there's nefarious actors or anything bad going on behind the scenes, but this is a business and their business is to grow that business over time. So We've talked before that, uh, you know, I've been in other parts of the business, right? And, and I've, I've been on the insurance and annuity side and I was in, you know, uh, product design, you know, product design committees, things like that. You know, and in the index annuity space, the name says it, right? Your, your return is, is tied to some index. And because the index that everybody is familiar with is the S&P, most companies want to use the S&P index. 
The problem is that they have to pay money for that, right? It, it, like you said, it's a licensing deal. And in the interesting, and I don't know that I realized this, I mean, I knew it logically, but I never realized till I was in these product design meetings that you're having these conversations with actuaries and, and people that are, that are talking about, you know, how do we, you know, how do we pay for this particular feature of a product that we're trying to design? Well, you know, if we didn't have to pay the licensing fee to S&P, that eats up part of that budget. But we have to have that because if we're going to index to something that no one's ever heard of, no one's going to buy the product. So it really does come down. It really does come down to marketing. It's so easy for someone to say, well, what did the S&P do? And, and again, the media, everybody's drilled into your head for years and years and years. Yeah. I mean, turn on CNBC or not to knock on a, a, a one network in specific, but I mean, they all have it's not just the S&P. Look at the Dow. I mean, the, the, a Dow is another index, which uh, I mean, I find to be laughable. I mean, it's been around forever. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, to your point, Mike, the only reason why we see the Dow quoted all the time is because the number is bigger. The index number is bigger. So when you see it, a thousand point move in the Dow, it, it catches a lot of eyeballs. But on a relative basis these days, a thousand point move really isn't that big a deal. I mean, the S&P just do a better job of marketing themselves than Dow. I mean, the Dow just get lazy. I mean, when I was when I first got into the business, Nobody talked about the S&P. It was all the Dow, right? You know, I remember when, when the stock market started to, to move, you know, in the, in the 90s, everybody was going 10,000 by 2,000, right? Because all they thought yeah. about was the Dow. But, it, but now all everybody thinks about is the S&P. I think what, there's a couple of things that, that happen. One is that uh, as undiversified as the S&P 500 is, the Dow owns 30 stocks, right? So that's one problem. But the big problem to me, and I think over the years, is just changed the game is that the, the Dow is what we call price weighted. The price of the stock determines the weight in the index, which makes absolutely no sense. Literally no sense. So a stock with a $500 price on it would be weighted more than something with a $3. So it's lunacy. A stock price means nothing. Uh, whereas in the S&P 500, it's market cap weighted. So the size of the company determines the weight in the index. Now, I'm not saying that's perfect, but it's way better than price. I mean, and if you look at institutional dollars that actually track these indices, like I said, I think it's about $2 trillion or a little bit over $2 trillion t- tracks the S&P 500. The Dow is like $30 billion. It's tiny. When I, you know, when we, we decided that we were going to tackle this topic, you know, as, as we all do, right, I, I start sort of poking around to look at, you know, different angles, you know, and, and maybe to try to see it from a different perspective and whatever. And, you know, you, when you start to look up benchmark, because that's really what it is, right, you start to go down this, this path of, you know, why benchmarks are so super important. And what's the difference between a, a benchmark and a KPI? You get down this, this rabbit hole. And, and honestly, the more you think about it, at least for me, the more I read about it, the more I think about it, the, the more sort of just noise it all is. It's just, you know, if I'm getting to where I need to get to, that is really what should matter for me. This is a weird thing for me to say, but I, I've never been particularly motivated by goals and benchmarks anyway. You know, I know a lot of people, it's like, well, you have to have a goal, especially when you get into to this business, right? Because when, when you first get in, I mean, the reality is you got to build a clientele and and it, it really is sort of a sales job. And so it's like, you know, what's your goal? You know, and, and what's our goal as a business, right? It's, it's when, you, when you become an RIA, it's, okay, well, we want to be, you know, federally registered. We got to get to 100 million under management. Then it's, you know, what's our next goal? It's 500. And, and you know, what's the, what's the biggie? Well, we want to be a billion dollars. There's no real logic to any of that. It's just something to shoot for. And personally, I've never been particularly motivated by that stuff because I always feel like, you know, if I fall short, then I, I don't feel good about myself. And if I hit it, you know, what do I do? Get lazy and stop working? The, to, to me, they've just, you know, I realize to most people they're motivating, 
and that you need those benchmarks along the way to sort of get to what that goal is. But if you think about it really logically, it's, it's just such a head game, the whole thing. It's like when you're watching a football game and they, they interview like the player after the, after the game and they're like, oh, you know what? The next game is going to be whoever your arch rival or the next game is, uh, you know, you have to win to make the playoffs or whatever the situation is, you know, are you more motivated? And the guys are always like, no, no, I'm not more motivated. I mean, I, I come out here to play as hard as I can possibly play. And the result is the result. It's irrelevant who I'm playing or what the game is. There's only one type of investor, only one specific investor I can think of that should ever be trying to beat the S&P 500 consistently. And that is somebody who has been hired to beat the S&P 500, an active manager who's benchmarked against that. On the institutional side of the business where I came from, relative performance is the only thing that matters. So I had actually, one of my clients at the time was a, uh, a relatively large money manager. This is during the financial crisis when the market was down 38%. He actually outperformed the S&P 500 by about 350 basis points that year. So about 3.5%. So let's say he's down, call it, you know, 35%. His assets under management, I'm not lying, this is a true story, went from about 700 million under management to about 10 billion in less than 18 months because he outperformed the S&P 500 in one of the worst years ever. He was a genius. He was one of the best money managers I've ever met in my life. But that gives you an idea of the, the type of investor that should be benchmarked against the S&P 500. I mean, I don't know a single person that would have been doing cartwheels down, down their, their, you know, their hallway if they were only down 35% in 2008. I mean, most of our clients would have, would have freaked out for good reason. So to your, you're right, Mike. I mean, I just, I, I can't think of it. I've never met a single normal everyday person whose liabilities in life are benchmarked against the S&P 500 doesn't exist. I was going to take that a little bit further, you know, in a, in a down year, it, let's say, let's say the S&P is down 20 and, and our performances were down 10. We, we've outperformed the S&P by a thousand basis points, right? By 10, by f- a full 10%. But no one cares because they've lost money. It, it's, just, it's just the perspective changes so strangely when you change the circumstances. So I totally agree that benchmarking against the S&P it doesn't make a ton of sense. However, I do think you have to have some sort of benchmark, right? You have to be able to measure whether you're, you're investing on your own, measure your own performance, or if you're using a, a money manager or a financial advisor to measure their performance. So if the S&P 500 or any indice for that matter is not the, the measure to benchmark, what is? You're going to hate this answer. Oh God, go ahead, Tim. <laughs> you got, you're going to hate this answer. Mike especially is going to hate this answer. It depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends. It does. I mean, Look, here's the thing is everybody's, you know, if your goals are different, then your benchmarks by definition or by extension have to be different, right? I mean, I would say most retirees that are looking to outlive and not outlive their money, to me, their, whatever their personal rate of inflation is, would, would be the benchmark. It just, it just depends. So, well, you're, so are you saying that your own personal goal should be your benchmark? Because that's what I was going to say. I, I think yeah, everybody's benchmark actually, should yeah. be what, whatever their own personal thing is, right? You know, I, 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 I need a hundred grand a year to live and I don't want to, you know, and I don't want to erode my principle. That, that's my goal. Okay. Let's say that that's my goal. So, so that should be my benchmark. My benchmark should be to earn a hundred thousand dollars a year without invading my, my principle. It, it, it's, it, I know that sounds super simple, but to me, that's what it should be. Well, I also, I also think there is a, an additional component to it, right? If the person listening right now is an active investor on their own, then that's probably true. But if the person listening right now is using a financial advisor or working with a financial advisor, the benchmark doesn't necessarily have to be 
the growth of your portfolio, right? A financial planner is doing a lot more for you than just growing your money. I mean, we've talked about this in, in previous episodes a, a number of times that there's a lot more to financial planning than just growing your assets. So, you know, there, there's got to be some sort of uh, alternative benchmark for is my financial planner meeting the goals at which I set forward for them, right? And are they, are they managing my, my psyche, right? When things are going wild, are they managing my retirement plan? Are they managing my wealth transfer plan? Are they, you know, are, are they managing other aspects of the plan, not just the growth of, of my investment? So maybe what you're saying is, the, is it's a multi-part, multi-part goal, right? Part of the goal is, is the actual investment results. And part of the goal is, 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 you know, is doing it in a way that I'm comfortable with, you know, sort of managing my emotions. I think it's critically important. It's like any other purchase, right? Are you happy with it? You know, yeah, the numbers show up but at the same time. If you don't trust the person or you're a financial advisor, if you don't like that person, um, you know, th- that creates unnecessary risk because when things get weird, as we all know, they happen. Uh, if, you, if you can't have a conversation with your advisor and, and, and feel good about it, then all that does is create unnecessary risks in the process. So what's your takeaway? Yeah. So, so let's sum this up. So basically what we're saying today is investors really shouldn't benchmark their returns on really any index. It's, it's inappropriate. Two, that growth is really a small part of financial planning. So if you do want to use some sort of benchmark with your financial planner, you know, it needs to be a little bit more comprehensive than just what's the growth of my portfolio. And three, we sort of touched on this, but I think it's important is, and, and Tino, you, you preach this more than anybody, is don't listen to the media, right? The media is only going to talk about the S&P 500 or, or the Dow or the NASDAQ. And, and really, it's, it's, it's hype. It is. You know, and Rami, I'm glad you brought that point out because I wanted to talk about that earlier to some extent. I mean, look, it is a marketing tool, right? So if, and it's in the news all the time, and, and I'm not saying there's collusion going on here or anything like that, but uh, I find it interesting that the, uh, the number of stocks that go in and out of the S&P 500 is pretty high relative to other indices. Uh, half the companies in the index were not in the, in the S&P 500 back in 1999. Also during the tech boom uh, back in the 90s, the index was skewed to the tech sector. And then prior to the financial crisis, it was skewed towards um, financial companies through the mortgage boom. You know, it just, it just lines up too perfectly. So again, I mean, there are also a lot of other games that are being played here. I mean, I don't know if you, if you guys remember when Tesla got included, what was it, like a year and a half ago at this point, something like that. I mean, Tesla ran up like crazy before they got announced. So there's all these games that traders play. They try to guess to see who goes in the index because once they get added to the index, let's say Tesla, whatever the other company, any index fund that tracks the S&P 500 has to buy that stock. It's a guaranteed purchase, right? So you're anticipating this, 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 this effect and what you end up having a lot of times in the S&P 500, frankly, a lot of um, stocks with high valuations or high multiples because of that, that bid up process. People have to own the stocks whether they want to or not. So again, you're, you're thinking about an index that theoretically at many times has a lot of companies with very high multiples attached to them. So we're going to end the show today a little bit differently. So Mike, you actually said this earlier. <laughs> so sometimes I'm, sometimes afraid, I'm afraid of having me quoted back to me sometimes. Yeah, no doubt. No, no, this isn't a bad one. So, so we, we, got a, we got an email actually from a listener and you actually said it so totally independently um, earlier about some of the clients that you talked to. So it just happens to be the same question, but I think it's a good way to end the show. And the question is, I often read that the majority of professional money managers fail to beat the S&P. Why would I pay an advisor when I can just buy an index fund and have a better chance of earning higher returns? So it sort of fits in with this conversation, but I think this is probably more of a conversation 
about active versus passive investing. So I wanted to tie it in today because it really does fit with what we're talking about. But I think the answer is probably a much longer conversation about active versus passive investing. So maybe we, we maybe start the next episode with, with the answer to that question and then a discussion of passive versus active. Perfect. Because I do think passive, passive versus active becomes a whole episode. Whole episode. There's a lot to dive into on that one. Awesome. We can make it corny. So stay tuned for next episode. I hate that. <laughs> same bad time, same bad station. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management, LLC and Darwin Advisors, LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there could be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.